Welcome to the Cello Sherpa Podcast, where we explore all aspects of the climb to the summit from intermediate musician to the professional stage. Check us out online at thecellosherpa.com or follow us on Twitter and Instagram at thecellosherpa. I'm Joel Dallow, your host. I joined the cello section of the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra in 1999 and founded the Riverside Chamber Players based in Roswell, Georgia in 2003. Today's episode is sponsored by Clear Resources, your premier resource for compliance, legal, ethics, and risk. For more information, visit them online at clearresources.com. Today's guest is Vladimir Fung, who was not only the youngest cellist to win the Tchaikovsky competition, but the first American in over 40 years. Thank you so much for joining us today on the Cello Sherpa podcast. Thank you so much for having me as a guest. I'm really excited to be here. So tell us a little bit about your background. Sure. So I began to play the cello when I was three and a half. I come from a family where both my parents were actually trained in pure mathematics, but there was always an appreciation in both of my parents' families for classical music. I grew up with three siblings and my mother wanted all of us to play an instrument at some point. Okay. And I'm the second oldest. So my older sister was playing violin and at the time, my family was living in Corvallis, Oregon, and there was a really superb Suzuki cello teacher in that town. And that's how I got my start. I began studying with her in 2002 when I was three years old. Wow, that's great. And did you make a conscious choice to pick the cello or was that something that was foisted upon you because of this school? <laughs> I think it was more foisted upon me, but... I think it matches sort of my personality because, you know, it's it's a relaxed instrument. We play it sitting down and it's big enough. It's substantial. So it feels like we're interacting with something that's really a part of us, you know, like we're giving it a hug. Mm -hmm. And I remember <laughs> my first teacher, she would always have me sing the song. You know, I love my cello very much. I play it every day and give it a big bear hug, wrapping my arms around the neck. <laughs> and I think about that still quite often, actually. So I guess you started Suzuki style then, right? That's correct. Okay. And then did one of your parents also study along with you to work with you at home? Or how did that work? I think initially my mother was learning a bit along with me. And I remember we would listen a lot to the recordings of the Suzuki books, like in the car on the way to school and so forth. And then at some point, I think she, she kind of gave up maybe after book one. <laughs> <laughs> so, but was she an active part of your practicing every day or what age would you say you became independent enough and kind of had the fire in yourself to push forward without mom or dad being involved? She was a really big presence in my practice until, gosh, I want to say I was eight or nine. Okay. And at that point, I think I started practicing more independently, but it wasn't really until I was, I'd say, 12, 11, 12, that I started having a sense of personal motivation to really pick up the cello every day and want to go at it, want to improve and uh -huh. learn new repertoire and so forth. How many different teachers did you have growing up then? You started with a Suzuki teacher. Did you switch somewhere in middle and high school? Yeah. So my first teacher, her name is Anne Graby, and she's a fantastic Suzuki teacher. I was with her for seven years. Mm -hmm. And then when I was nine years old, my family actually relocated from Oregon to the Boston area. So I switched teachers. I was with another wonderful Suzuki teacher named Nancy Hare. Okay. And I studied with her for two years. And then my next teacher was Emmanuel Feldman, who was a really wonderful Boston-based teacher, also freelancer and 
performer. And actually now he's an inventor. He invented a new type of end pin, which I now use. But he uh, was, I would say, the first teacher to really push me Mm -hmm. in a substantial way. I remember one of our first lessons, he was like, all right, what we're going to do now is we're going to go through all the Popper Etudes. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> I don't. I think, I, I think I'd think i only done maybe number 11, which is the easiest one uh-huh. at that time. And then like second, third lesson, he was like, you know, I think you need to play Haydn D. You need to improve your scales. You know, <laughs> I ended up working on Haydn D, you know, like for six months, trying uh-huh. to get all those arpeggios and so forth. Yeah. What age were you when you really knew this is what you wanted to do for a living? I think it was around that same age, 12, 13. Around that time, I started going to summer festivals and... I was surrounded by some people who were a bit older than I was, people who were already auditioning for schools or maybe already at conservatory. So being around them, seeing their devotion to the craft, to the art, was a big moment for me. Mm-hmm. Did you start doing competitions at that point? or what? Talk us through what led down the road to ending up at Tchaikovsky and being the youngest winner. I think that would be great for our audience to know how you managed to pull that off. <laughs> Yeah, sure. So I've always thought of myself as a very goal-oriented, goal-driven person. So having competitions in my life was a good way to keep myself motivated Uh and practicing conscientiously and making sure that I was really pushing myself to improve rather than just maintain my level, shall shall I say. Yeah. And I did a number of more local competitions with some of the smaller community orchestras in the Boston area when I was 11, 12. That was when I got my start. And then my first sort of real international competition was in 2012. It was the Tchaikovsky competition for young musicians, which was being held at that time in Switzerland. Okay. And I went when I was 13. And I remember I was talking to my mother. I was like, I really want to go. I think, you know, I don't know how well I'll do, but I really want to, you know, try it out. And I remember the rep was pretty substantial. And, you know, in the final round, you had to play a concerto. So I played the Tchaikovsky Rococo variations. And that was actually my first performance of that piece with an orchestra. Hmm. But I remember the first round when I got there in Switzerland, you know, I'd been practicing really hard. And the first round, the first piece that I played was Popper Etude number 17, the one with all the, you know, the double stops. (laughs) And I remember like, literally, I'm not, I'm not even joking, bar three, my fingers fell off the fingerboard, right? So I was playing some of the double stops, da, 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 and the whole thing fell off. And I, at that moment, I was just thinking, oh my gosh, you know, I came here all, all the way for nothing. You know, it's just screwed up right off the bat. That was an unforgettable moment in this sort of the sheer anguish of, you know, <laughs> folding <laughs> under the pressure. But I ended up playing, obviously, the rest of my rep in that round, and I ended up advancing and Anyway, ultimately, I made it to the final, but that was my first sort of big multi-round competition. And then I started doing more of them throughout my teenage years. Wow. You were 13 at the time that you did that. Did that give you some indication and confidence to feel like you were on the right track? I think so. You know, it, it was, it's an interesting thing because at that time, social media was pretty new, but you could still get a sense like on YouTube, like looking up other cellists who were around your age, you know, and I remember knowing some of these people, people that I really admired, who weren't maybe in the same geographical area that I was, maybe they were from New York or Chicago. And a lot of them ended up going to that competition. They were sort of my peers. And I did, I did well at the competition, I got second prize. So it did give me kind of a boost to say, like, you know, maybe I can really take this a step further and keep going and keep pushing and try to be the best I can. And do you remember from that point, is that what turned the switch that you said to yourself, I'm coming back for the big competition when I'm old enough? 
<laughs> well, actually, my, my relationship to the big competition goes back even further because I remember the first time that the competition was broadcast live on the internet was 2011, mm-hmm. a year earlier. And that was also a really important year because that was the first real summer festival that I went to. I went to the Indiana Summer String Academy in Bloomington, Indiana. Yeah. And, and I remember I had an obsession with rewatching the videos from, from the archive, from the competition. It was kind of a, a breakfast ritual, actually. I would wake up and eat my cereal and watch Edgar Moreau's final round performance of the Schumann Cello Concerto. Oh, wow. <laughs> and, I, and there are just some performances, you know, I totally admired both him and, and also Narek Haknazaryan, who was the gold medalist that year. And I just thought it was so cool that they came and like they played so much repertoire and they just had to prepare so much. And it was all at such a high level. And I also was really drawn to the fact that there was a, a big audience, you know, it was, a, it was a, a, like a real performance mm-hmm. and they were coming back and, you know, sort of engaging with the audience during their recital rounds. I just thought at the time it was so cool, like that you'd have the opportunity to really perform in a foreign country in that way uh, to sort of share yourself as a musician with the public there. Yeah. And did you do any other big international competitions before you got to Tchaikovsky or was that the first really big one for you? I did a couple of others. So I did the Inescu competition in Romania in 2016. Uh-huh. And then I also did a competition called the Schoenfeld competition in China in 2018. And also in 2018, I did the Paolo cello competition in Finland. So I did a lot of competitions, but, <laughs> okay. but I enjoyed it. I really thoroughly enjoyed them. Good. I think it takes a special person to enjoy them. <laughs> so clearly you were working in an arena that was working well for you. And it's funny, actually, you brought up Edgar. He played with us. Johannes Moser was going to come and play Prokofiev Symphonia Concertant with us, but he's been ill and has had to cancel a bunch of his concerts this year. Right. So Edgar filled in for him and I, I didn't know who he was and I was just completely blown away by what he did live with that piece. He's really an impressive player. So it was really Absolutely. cool to be introduced to him. So how, you were 20 when you went to the Tchaikovsky competition and how old are you now? 23. Okay, so three years ago, you go to the Tchaikovsky competition. Talk about what that was like logistically. Where was it? How long were you there? All those kinds of things. Sure. So the competition was held in June of 2019, and it was a two-week event. And the cello division was held in St. Petersburg. The piano division, I think the violin division, a couple others were in Moscow, but the cello division was in St. Petersburg. And I remember actually they opened the application process quite late. So I didn't send my application in until March And I didn't hear whether I'd be participating until I think mid-April. It was quite late. And so the preparation process was really interesting because, you know, it's so much repertoire. I think I I remember it was something like three hours of music in total or two and a half hours of music in total. So, wow. And, you know, sometimes we approach that like when we play a recital, but even then it's like 75 minutes. And also it's not like always going to be the biggest stage of your life, right? So the amount of diligence I think that I had to, impose on myself to prepare that was uh, definitely something that probably haven't managed to uh, match since. (laughs) Uh (laughs) Yeah, actually, I I remember some people might find this interesting, but one of the things that I was really concerned about going into the competition was the jet lag, because I, I always find being sleep deprived, the first thing that goes are your reflexes, basically. So like 
playing something like the, the Pezzo Capriccioso, you know, all this fast stuff, everything's just going to feel harder, more lethargic. So I really wanted to be very well rested for the competition. And since the, the organizers of the competition were covering our trip there, they were paying for our flights, they also were able to dictate when we could come. So we couldn't come more than a day and a half before like the, the drawing of the lots. Oh, wow. And I usually like to arrive early, like all the previous competitions I did, I arrived maybe sometimes in some cases, like when I went to China, I was there a week earlier because I wanted to, to adjust. But so in this case, I did something kind of extreme, which is I decided I was going to adjust to Russian time before I left. Oh, so <laughs> I remember about a week before I left, I woke up at like four or something and I was totally a mess the whole day. And then I went to bed at 5 PM. I took some melatonin. I went to bed at 5 PM and I woke up at 2:30 AM. Wow. <laughs> and you know, I was uh summertime. So I was, you know, in my family's house and everyone else was you know, sound asleep at 3 AM. And there I was, you know, kind of listening to Luciano Berrio trying to get a sense, you know, it's kind of a mystical thing, but I was up 2:30 AM for like three or four days. And then when I went there, I was more or less adjusted immediately to the, to the time difference. So I'm, I'm glad I did that. <laughs> yeah, that's an interesting point. I'm glad you brought that up. And then so continue. By the way, were you in school at this point? I was. I had just finished my second year as an undergrad at Juilliard. And who were you studying with? So I was studying with Richard Aaron and Timothy Eddy. I was splitting my time between their two studios. Okay. All right. Now go ahead. Continue on with the story. So at the competition itself, there were three rounds. The first two rounds were both recital rounds, about an hour of music each. And then mm -hmm. the final round was two concertos back to back. Wow. So the Rococo variations and then a concerto of your choice. So I remember I, I arrived and actually the pianist I was playing with was a friend of mine who I had played with at the Inescu competition. He's a wonderful Romanian pianist, Julian Ocescu. And we rehearsed pretty intensively for, for a day or two. And then I think we played don't exactly remember, maybe it was the second day of, of the first round. You know, there were 25 cellists who were playing. So the first round spanned over, I think, three or four days. Uh -huh. And after everyone played, then they would announce the results of who would pass the next round. And then maybe there'd be a day break. And then the second round would begin. So on the whole, I would say, you know, you'd play your round and then you'd have three or four days to prepare for the next round. Oh, okay. How did you sleep during those days? You know, I, I actually slept all right. I'm very lucky because I, I know friends and, and also colleagues who I kept running into at the same competitions that I went to. Some of them just couldn't sleep the night before, you know, a big round or a big performance, but I always slept well. <laughs> oh, that's good. And so then the recital rounds, are they from the beginning open to the public also? Yes, they were. Okay. And is that just recital repertoire or was there were no concertos stuck in the first two rounds of recitals were there? Correct. So there were a couple parameters that you had to fulfill. Like in the first round, you had to play some Bach, you had to play the Tchaikovsky, Pezzo Capriccioso, and you had to play, I think, an etude. But aside mm -hmm. from that, you could play anything you wanted up to like 50 minutes. And then in the second round, you had to play like a big sonata by Brahms or Beethoven or the Schubert or Peggione, and then at least one work by a Russian composer. But aside from that, it was free choice. There was quite a bit of room to choose what you wanted to play. Did you attend any of the other recitals while you were waiting? <laughs> I couldn't. I know some people, they find it interesting to sort of get a feel for the hall and the, the public, but I couldn't. It just, it would psych me out too much. I would think so. I mean, I've noticed I've taken a lot of orchestra auditions, obviously, and just sitting in the room and hearing the people on either side of your room, if you're lined up in a row warming up, they always sound 
fantastic through a wall in particular. (laughs) It's definitely a mess with your head. So I started putting headphones in and listening to something else instead of what was happening around me because it's too distracting. And then so how did you feel in the two recital rounds? Were you happy with how it went and surprised or talk a little bit about that? One of the things that I really enjoy about playing recitals is because there's so many pieces on it. If something doesn't go well, then it's like, okay, you flip the switch and now you're doing something completely different, right? So yeah. let's say, you know, your A2 doesn't go well, well, then you can hopefully make a good impression in the Bach. So, you know, while I was nervous, I would say that since I, I'm really passionate about doing recitals, I really enjoy them. I, I managed, I think, to get sort of in the flow of the moment. Both of them were really fun. Uh-huh. I think my first round, I was quite satisfied with. My second round, probably a little less so. But yeah, what can you do? Just do your best. <laughs> That's all you can do. That's true. And I think that one of the key things that you said is that you were having fun. And I think if you can cross into that territory in a competitive state, then you're really getting to a place where you can be a musician and not worry so much about the little details and let yourself shine. And so I think that's that's an important key in doing well. So then you get to the finals and you had to play Rococo Variations. What was the other concerto that you picked? The other concerto that I chose to play was the second Shostakovich concerto. Oh, wow. (laughs) And actually, that was a piece that was essentially new to me. And I was actually very lucky because I had a couple people in the Boston area who helped me arrange the opportunity to do a run through with piano Uh about four or five days before I left for Russia. And I think if I hadn't done that, it would have been an absolute catastrophe because, you know, just that kind of piece to play it through for the first time, especially if you're trying to do it from memory. It's so nerve wracking and it was really tough. I I remember (laughs) my routine actually for working on that piece because it was so new for me is this started about 30 days before I left for Russia. Every day I would take a walk and listen to a different recording of the piece. Mm -hmm. You know, it's about a 30 minute piece. So I got a nice 30 minute walk every day. (laughs) It was interesting kind of familiarizing myself with the discography. There were a couple of recordings that I really listened to over and over again, like, of course, the great uh, Rostropovich recording with the Boston Symphony and Ozawa. Yeah. I also really enjoyed, there's a fantastic recording made by Franz Helmerson and some Russian orchestra. I can't remember exactly. Yeah, that's one of the things that you have such an advantage over those of us who are older and didn't have everything digital. We had to buy all the CDs and order all the music to be able to find and cultivate that many recordings in one place and be able to take a walk with them on top of that. That's right. <laughs> that's pretty great. <laughs> and so you play the two concertos back to back. How many finalists were there? Do you remember? Yeah. So there were six in total. Yeah. This back to back thing was pretty intense. I mean, after you played the Rococo, you could choose the order, but I chose to play the Rococo first. And after I played it, I just went back, you know, drank a bottle of water and boom, out I go, you know, play, play another one. And it's just, it's strange to me because that's something that, you know, it's really never done, you know, that you play two concertos back to back. I mean, really, like the only cellist I can think of who, who I know did it was Rostropovich because he did those gala concerts where he would play all these premieres, you know, in the same concert. Yeah. I know Yuja Wang, she just did something like that with the Rachmaninoff concertos at Carnegie Hall. So I, I guess there is precedent, but yeah. 
But it's so rare. It's a skill that you're kind of pushing on yourself that you don't normally need. It's definitely, I would say, the ultimate trial by fire. Right. And how did you feel that they went that day? Did you feel like you were having your day and that whatever happens from there, it was out of your control? Or how did you feel after you were done that? Yeah, it was, I will say that especially the few days leading up to the performance of the final round were pretty tough. And I don't think I would want to relive those days if I were given the opportunity because it was just the stress and, you know, you work so long for something and then that's the moment and you don't have another shot basically. And you have to know that whatever you do, just it has to be enough somehow. And I found that to be a lot of pressure, but you know, of course, when the time comes, the moment does kind of give you something and, that's the way I generally feel about performing is that the, the toughest part is always the part before you go on stage, mm-hmm. just the anticipation, the doubt, the anxiety about how well it will go. But once you're in the flow of it, you have to sort of relinquish control and allow it to just happen. Yeah. For me, that's what it was about. And I think, I don't know if I would say it was like my peak day, but thankfully I think, you know, it was, it was enough. Yeah. And then tell us what it's like how did they announce the winner? Were you all on stage and what that was like to go through? Sure. So um, slight tangent for those who might be interested. I had a post-competition routine where after every round, I would go get KFC. <laughs> and actually, <laughs> actually, Russia has really nice KFC. So there was one like a couple blocks down the street. So I was the penultimate competitor. I played around, I think, 3 p.m. and... I finished by by 4, 4.15, and the next competitor was going at 4.30. So I went to go have some KFC at around 4.30. I ate my fried chicken pretty leisurely, and then I came back for the announcement of the results around 6, 6 or or 7, something like that. And they gathered the six of us all in the middle of the hall, like where the audience would sit. And the jury came out on stage, and they started announcing in uh, reverse order. So they started announcing 6th and 5th, 4th. Yeah. Do you have any recollection as to what went through your mind when you knew you were going to be the one because they had announced all the five people before you? (laughs) (laughs) Right. Because, you know, the moment is when they announced second, right? That's that's when you know. Yeah. uh, (laughs) I just remember, you know, feeling really surprised and I guess happy. And I was actually really lucky that my some of my family had was there for the competition. So my mother and my younger brother and my grandmother were there and managed to celebrate a bit with them after. Yeah. So what does winning the Tchaikovsky competition get you today? Well, I think that it opened up, you know, just more exposure and it it helped me pretty shortly after the competition, I changed management. So at at the time of the competition, I was working with young concert artists, which is a, you know, a non-commercial agency. So they work on fostering musicians at the beginning of their careers. And then I was able to secure a commercial manager about a month and a half after the competition. So that was a big step. And, you know, also meeting people, colleagues. I remember at the Winner's Gala concert, I met the pianist Mao Fujita in the cafeteria. We were eating together and he's someone that I've played with a few times since then. And he's a pianist I really admire. So... Yeah, it was, it was, I think it's, it's been a, obviously a huge part of my career and it's helped me immensely. But at the same time, in a way, there was this sense that before the competition, the competition was sort of this end goal. Uh-huh. And then after the competition, you start to see that it's really only the beginning because the hard part is sustaining a career in music, you know, in a way that fulfills you and doesn't burn you out and keeps you satisfied with your work. 
Give us an idea now that you have that behind you, obviously, and it's a few years behind you, what your schedule is like now. You're still in school, still finishing a degree, so or are you done? I actually finished, uh, I graduated with my bachelor's degree in May of 2021, and since then I've been out of school, so I was trying to make my way. What does your performance schedule look like? How busy are you? How much repertoire are you working on at the same time? That kind of thing. I think it would be cool for people to hear what's happened since this huge moment in your life and what's happened up until now. Sure. So, you know, the the pandemic hit about nine months after the competition. So that was, um, you know, kind of hit the pause button on everything. And since then, things have been coming back. I'd say that starting not this season, but last season, the 21-22 season, things were mostly uh, back to normal. And, you know, for, for me, the pace that I've been doing the, the past two years has been about 50 or 60 concerts a year. And it's a pace that I think is good for me at this point, maybe even a little bit too much. Mm-hmm. But like, for example, right now I'm working on two concertos. I'm preparing a performance for a couple performances of the Lalo Concerto, which is a piece that I actually never really learned well as a kid. So uh, it's a bit of a challenge for me to really take on the piece for the first time at this point and not having a terrible amount of time to work on it. I have to be very efficient about the way I'm, I'm going about it. Yeah. So that, that's one of the, the big things. And then I'm also really excited to be working on the world premiere of a new concerto by Catherine Balch, which I'll be premiering with the Dallas Symphony at the end of April. Great. And then beyond that, I have a couple other solo projects, like solo cello programs that I'm doing. Mm-hmm. And where would you say your passion lies most right now? Do you mean in terms of repertoire or? Yeah, repertoire and specific types of concerts that you're really excited about putting on your calendar. You know, I really love giving recitals and I especially love giving a recital where the program is something that I feel very attached to, where I feel like I'm the author of the program. And, you know, it's not always easy because sometimes a presenter will meddle with your program because they don't think they can sell tickets, which <laughs> definitely a valid concern. Yeah. For me, there's no greater feeling than knowing that you've put together an experience for an audience member, you know, and I think like a, a, a full recital length concert experience is, at least for me as a, as a listener, as, as a lover of music, when I've attended great recitals, there's just been nothing like it because you're kind of taken on this journey and you feel changed after 70, 80 minutes of music. And I, that's what I aim to do. That's that's what I'm really passionate about. Yeah, that's great. And what advice would you have for musicians that might want to pursue the same path that you have? You know, just just go for it. If you really love it enough, then then go for it. I think that the challenge for the challenge for me, at least, and the thing that I've been I've been working on is it's it's very easy to kind of get caught up in the extra musical things, right? Like how stressed you are about this such and such and whatever and how limited your practice time is and how busy you are or how much you don't have enough time at home. There are all sorts of complaints that one can come up with, right, about about pretty much anything. Yeah. But I think once you get into the flow, like, for example, I'm learning the Lalo Concerto, right? And I dread the idea of having to learn it. But once I'm actually learning it, I enjoy it. Yeah. Right. So for me, that's sort of, that's what I try to tell myself. That's the advice I give myself when I'm feeling like it's tough or I'm lacking motivation. 
Do you think that part of the challenge with playing something like Lalo is that it's something that you did so early in your concerto repertoire that you get stuck in your head from when you were a teenager and you have to pull yourself to a different musical place now that you're a mature adult? Or what is that what you're finding most difficult about it? Yeah, well, I mean, in the case of the Lalo, it's it's a piece that I, you know, I don't think I ever memorized it. So I never knew it that well, you know, and I never performed it or anything. So it, it really is kind of like a first time sort of thing for me. Yeah. But, you know, in the case with a piece like the Saint-Saëns, which I played a lot as a kid, for sure, you know, I think that when you learn it under the close supervision of a teacher, there's always a sense that you're kind of doing what you're told. Yeah. And if you can play the piece, then you're good. You know, you, you made it through, you played all the notes. And then once you're kind of on a concert stage, you have to think, okay, well, what am I actually doing with it? What's actually happening? And you find that a lot of the ways that you were approaching it as a kid, maybe, you know, you're not using so much bow, you weren't really projecting, you weren't really thinking about the phrasing and so forth. Those are the kinds of things that you need to reorient to work through it. Yeah. Well, is there anything else we might have missed that you'd like to share with our audience? The only thing I'd add is that I feel like I've been really lucky in my life to have done well in competitions especially now having some distance from that process. I think that a lot of people see it sort of as the end all of, again, they see it sort of as an end point. Mm -hmm. And I think I had that mentality as well, but being on the other side of it, it really is only a mile marker, a goalpost. I think that the journey of being a better musician is something that it happens every day in your practice. It's not defined by a single concert or a single tour or a single lesson or whatever. So would you say you're done with competitions? Absolutely. Then? <laughs> I'm never going back. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm going to put this in the show notes, but where can people find you online? So I'm on Instagram. My handle is Z Fung Cello. Okay. Or if you just type in my name, you'll find me. And there I, I post updates about like my concerts, upcoming concerts. And I also do practice projects. So right now... It's been a while since I've updated it, but I'm working on like working through the Dvorak concerto and going sort of phrase by phrase talking about what I think. And so I'm kind of stuck in the middle of the second movement right now. So oh, great. I need to get, yeah, I, uh, I'll make a post at some point later this week. So you can follow me on Instagram and also Facebook page. And I also have a YouTube channel with a few videos of my playing. Okay. And do you have a website too? Yes. My website is just my name.com. Zlatomirfung.com. Okay. Well, thank you so much for joining us today on the Cello Sherpa podcast. Yeah. I really appreciate you having me. Thanks for giving me the opportunity to, to talk about this stuff. Thank you so much to Zlatimir Fung for joining us today and sharing his experience with us. And thank you for listening to another episode of the Cello Sherpa podcast. For more information on Zlatimir and any of the links we spoke about today, check out our show notes by scrolling down on the episode. Be sure and catch our next episode where we interview cellist Wendy Warner, who at the age of 18 soared to international attention after winning the top prize at the 4th International Rostropovich Cello Competition. We're here to serve you. So if you have questions or topic suggestions you would like to cover in future episodes, please use the contact page on our website, thecellosherpa.com, or tweet them at us at thecellosherpa. You will also find information about the specific services we offer on the website. Don't forget to follow us and rate us on whatever platform you get your podcasts. This helps us climb the rankings so other people can find us. Today's episode was produced, edited, and recorded by me, Joel Dallow. <laughs>